Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Amos Otis. He is third on the Kansas City Royals with 193 career home runs, third in RBIs, third in hits, second in runs scored, and second in stolen bases. And yet, when you think of the greatest Royals, for many, George Brett, Hal McRae, Brett Saberhagen, and Willie Wilson are the first to come to mind. But the first real superstar to ever play for the Royals was Amos Otis. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we'll take a look back on the career of this defensive genius who was also a star with his back. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. You know, some of the greatest players to ever play the games we love to watch are just so unassuming. They're easily forgotten or overlooked. And it's in every sport, from guys like Randy Jones of the San Diego Padres, who won the Cy Young in 1976, to quarterback Frank Ryan of the Cleveland Browns, who led the team to an NFL championship, to Randy Smith, who played for the NBA's Buffalo Braves, to Bob Bourne of the New York Islanders. There are so many, and today we're going to talk about one of the most underrated and overlooked superstars to play for the Kansas City Royals, Amos Otis. And joining me in just a moment to talk about Amos will be Bill Lamberty, a longtime member of Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, and a lifelong fan of the Kansas City Royals. First, though, a few notes beginning with this. At the top of each episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, After My Tees, the voice you hear is that of Zach Miller to introduce the show. A terrific voiceover talent and announcer, just an all-around great guy, Zach passed away recently, and rather than replace the show open, I'm going to keep it in honor of Zach and to help his legacy live on. Rest in peace, Zach. You'll be missed. Thank you to Henry R. and Jack K. for your continued support, and to the folks over at Hungry Cliff and Hearthcast for their continued support as well. If you'd like to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes, Suggest a forgotten hero you'd like to hear about or have any comments about the podcast, please visit sportsfh.com. There you can learn more about our guests and the stars we talk about. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes or look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. Today we're talking about Amos Otis. Originally drafted by the Red Sox and then the Mets, Otis had a cup of coffee with the Mets in 1967, and then again in 1969, their miracle year, before being traded to the Royals prior to the 1970 season. 
That first season with Kansas City, he played in 159 games, hit 284, stole 33 bases, and led the league in doubles with 36. He was a fixture in the Royals lineup for 14 years. As I had mentioned earlier, Bill Lamberty from Sabre is here today to talk about Amos Otis. Lamberty has written five biographies for Sabre's Biography Project, and now here's our conversation about Amos Otis. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Warren. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, the Biography Project is really terrific. What intrigued you about Amos Otis, and how long did it take you to write his biography? Well, I've been a I've been a Royals fan since the beginning. I was um, five five and six years old. I turned six late in the summer of '69, and so that's been my team. And um, you know, unlike most kids, Amos Amos Otis was actually my favorite player. He <laughs> was uh, he was a guy that um, I don't know. I've always I've always been a huge fan of players that kind of fill up all the stats columns as you'd say in basketball that sure. do maybe a lot a lot of things well but maybe not any one thing spectacularly well and so he was a guy I just kind of latched on to and I uh you know I lived in Nebraska so I didn't get to a lot of games but um I loved sitting out there in the right field bleachers and chanting AO and uh you know a lot of fun and he he gave us a lot of thrills I mean he was a heck of a player he sure was. Very cool to be able to write about uh, uh, one of your heroes from your childhood. Who are some of the other players you've written about? Um, Sam Crawford is a uh, Wahoo Sam is a player from um, about 20 miles from my hometown, a town, Wahoo, Nebraska, obviously, where a lot of my, uh, I had some relatives there. And so I wrote a short bio about him and um, a gentleman named, um, Roy Thomas from the very right around the turn of the 19th 20th century who was a really interesting guy played for the uh for the Phillies for many years. He was actually the player who um it was his bat work that kind of led to the uh to the fair foul rule of of foul balls counting as strikes until two strikes because he could just in the early days before foul balls counted as strikes he could stand there and foul pitches off all day and wow. so uh interesting yeah he's he's a pretty interesting dude but uh yeah those are the guys and then i've got i've got one in the works um oh i've got one in the works on sloppy thurston hollis thurston who pitched in the 20s and 30s he hmm. was actually born in my hometown of fremont nebraska and and um and then kenny williams uh who was the first 30 30 man for the st louis browns back in the 20s wow Cool stuff. Really interesting. Hey, so let's uh, let's turn our attention, though, to Amos. First of all, I got to say, I find it amazing that I've spoken to several people who are big time baseball fans and have been for years and years and years. And they have no clue who Amos Otis is. Actually, I find it stunning since he played relatively not that long ago, the 70s and the 80s. Tell me about yeah. Amos Otis and his skills on the field. What kind of ball player was he? Well, I always thought he was a little bit, uh, he was a really good um, metaphor for the Royals teams he played on because he was, uh, you know, like I said earlier, he, he really did a lot of things well. Um, he led the, he was Kansas City's first real all-star in, in his early years. Um, very good at getting on base, very good at, um, 
running the bases, high stolen base guy, led the league in steals a few times. He um, stole all three, stole his way around the bases once, kind of famously. Um, so he, he was uh, kind of a speed guy in, very early in his career, but the, the power developed a little bit, but he was pretty much the minute he moved to center field, um, once he reached Kansas City, he was a just a terrific defensive center fielder. There are fans of two teams that certainly know who Amos is. Of course, the Royals, and sadly so, the New York Met fan. I'm a lifelong lifelong Mets fan, and there are two ballplayers who, when I hear their names, they make me cringe. Jim (laughs) Jim Fregosi and Joe Foy. Tell me about Joe Foy and his connection to Amos Otis and the New York Mets. Well, that was uh, the gentleman that went to New York from Kansas City. And, you know, it's it's funny (laughs) because I've never really, and, and, you know, the Mets, I'm sure you know this, but the Mets um, had that uh, just a black hole and abyss at third base. Sure. Could not get that filled um, for the, in the early years of their existence. And, and, uh, and so they tried Amos Otis there. He was, uh, I think drafted as a a shortstop, but he would have been one of those players that would have easily transitioned um, to the outfield, maybe even in the minors. Um, and you know, except for that desperate need the Mets had at third base, but he was uh, um, he was kind of a guy without a position because the Mets were very well stocked in the outfield. Joe Foy started his career in Boston as a 26 year old. He had a really nice season for Kansas City in '69. Uh, he he uh, his only year with the Royals um, had about I think 110 OPS plus. Um, you know, some very nice stats. He was a, a player that looked like he was just coming into his prime. And, and I've got to be honest, Warren, you probably know more about his career after Kansas City than I do. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of lost track of that. But I don't really understand why he never panned out because he had a couple decent years in Boston earlier in his career. But, of course, what happened with Famous Otis is, uh, is pretty evident and pretty uh, – you know, historic is to say. Sure. You know, all I can always say about Jim Fregosi and Amos Otis and Joe Foy and Nolan Ryan, what were the Mets thinking? <laughs> right. Well, you know, every franchise has those uh, those trades that go desperately bad. But, uh, you know, it's just, I, you know, having read some of the, uh, some of the articles, um, discussing the trade at the time, sporting news and that sort of thing. It was not a trade that was panned. I mean, there was really no one that thought it was, uh, now Amos Otis had a, had a couple of, you know, he flashed well in, in New York a couple of times, but it was not a trade that made people say, Oh man, or, or wow, look what we got. It was a little bit of more of a, an afterthought kind of thing, kind of a lottery ticket, maybe on both Sure. It's it's actually it's in it's in retrospect that the Mets and Met fans can look back and go, oh, my gosh. But at the time, you're right. And and based on his his performance and his inability to hit when he was with the Mets, you sort of can't blame them. He was an outfielder and they tried to switch him to third base and it just didn't work out. Tell me about his years with the Mets, particularly his days with the farm teams in Jacksonville and Tidewater. Well, he was, uh, um, 
you know, like I say, a very, uh, very speedy guy, very athletic guy. And of course he was from Mobile, Alabama and the, the Mets had a, you know, a good history of, of mining Mobile with their mining the state of Alabama, I believe um, Jones and AG were both from down there. And, and, um, sure. it, you know, so he was, he was considered a decent prospect. Um, not a no miss guy by any means, but he had some, he had some very good offensive years for the, uh, uh, for the Mets down on the farm. When he got to Kansas City, his manager at the time was not Whitey Herzog, but he knew Whitey Herzog from his years with the Mets. And Whitey Herzog saw the talent that Amos possessed. In fact, he called Amos an untouchable. And man, was he thrilled when he became the manager of the Royals that Amos was already there. Can you tell me a little bit about the relationship between Whitey Herzog and Amos Otis, what Whitey saw in Amos, and what made well, him say well, I, that Amos wasn't untouchable? I think what he saw was that smooth athleticism that he really became known for. And, and you know, he um, Amos Otis was just so, uh, you know, he wasn't the kind of electric, explosive athlete that a lot of times we think of when we think of the 70s. He was really, really smooth, and I think uh, I think that's one of the things that Whitey Herzog really most appreciated about him was just the the steadiness and the consistency. And you know, he as soon as he got to KC in in '70, he uh, he hit 36 doubles, and he was always kind of a doubles doubles hitter in terms of his power. I think his uh, his career high in home runs was 26 and 73, but that 1970 uh, 1970 season. He just he really blossomed, and that was his first first year in KC. And it was uh, he was about I think he was 23 that year, maybe turned 24, and he um, you know just really kind of exploded onto the scene. And I think Whitey Herzog may have been uh, just about to become the manager in Texas then, right? Uh, wasn't on, or maybe was the manager in Texas, but and they weren't that yeah, good. Yeah, and they were they were struggling, but I, but. Um, Knowing what we all came to know about Whitey later in his time with Kansas City and, and with St. Louis, you know, that would obviously be a pretty good match uh, between Amos Otis and Whitey Herzog. Now, now help me understand this part. I don't, I don't understand this. Amos was originally drafted by the Red Sox as a shortstop. Mm-hmm. What happened with the Red Sox? How was the game structured back then? How was it that he went from Boston and then was drafted by the Mets? I'm I'm not understanding that. Well, it would it would be a loophole a little bit similar to what we'd know now as the Rule Five Draft. It wasn't ah. that formal, but teams would have to um, designate certain players, and, and other players would be um, available. And so the the Mets were able to uh, the Mets were able to pick him out of the Red Sox um, farm system. And he probably wasn't that upset because he really didn't have a good time in the Red Sox farm system. In fact, he played in the Appalachian League for a team in Harlan in Kentucky, and he was a victim of some uh, racial harassment. Can you tell us about that? Well, he was, yeah. And, you know, as as we came to learn later, there are great stories about um, Amos Otis and some of the, the dudes in Kansas City that would have discussions, you know, heated, very... Um, political centric discussions with a, a guy that helped run the Royals broadcast operations that we'd all come to know later as Rush Limbaugh. And so, um, wow. 
so that that kind of illuminates the um you know the nature of of uh the 60s and 70s that were just very you know civil rights was um not something that was taken for granted by any stretch of the imagination he was probably in high school when um LBJ signed the civil rights act the voting act and voting rights act and so you know this would have been very much you know for that generation of african americans would have been very much um a, a topic at the forefront of their their thoughts uh probably their conversations and so yeah the in the minor leagues he was uh he was uh, he, he did encounter some uh some racial discrimination and it you know as you hear about a lot of young players from the south um that were sort of you know in their communities you know living in a little bit of a cocoon where where Jim Crow was still very much a you know very much a thing you know this would have been a major shock for a lot of those kids sure so so tell me again how was Rush Limbaugh involved he was very early in his career he was can't remember his exact title. He was something like broadcast services director for the Royals. So he would work with uh, the Royals radio network and would line up affiliates, that sort of thing. So he was he was in the front office and he was uh, enough of a fan, so to speak, that he would be he was known to be around a lot, interacted with the players. That you know, thirty forty years later, I guess. We know what Rush Limbaugh's developed into. Sure. But a lot of what, yeah. a lot of what you read, you know, he was just a spirited young guy who always had a, a taste for conversation and debate. Interesting. So the Mets get him in the '66 draft, and he advances through the minors quickly, making it to the Mets' Triple A team in Tidewater in 1967. And there was no doubt that this guy had talent. In fact. He had such talent, I read where the Mets were so high on him that they turned down a trade for Joe Torre of the Atlanta Braves because Atlanta wanted Amos Otis. Just how good was he? To be, well, you know, when you're turning down Joe Torre for a, you know, not to give up a minor leaguer for Joe Torre, that says a lot. And I don't have the timeline right in front of me. It seems to me as I as I recall that there was a, a front office change. And of course, um, you know, Gil Hodges uh, came on board with the Mets also. And, and so I, if, if I'm remembering right, there was just sort of a change of a, of opinion as he, uh, he actually showed some things in that 1967 season when he reached the majors, you know, he had a, he uh, played pretty well defensively. He played primarily in the outfield that year. I think he played the, uh, 19 or 20 games in the outfield and only one at third base and uh, mostly played in the outfield when he came back up in 69. But he hit 220 and showed a little bit of pop, hit uh, hit a couple of doubles in that first trial. And then um, when he was, if I remember right, he started uh, started with the Mets at the very beginning of the season and then was farmed out and was uh, then the next year in 68 when he, was, when he didn't make the team out of the spring and was never called up. Um, as I remember it and understand it from my readings, he never really got over that. He was uh, bitterly disappointed and uh, sort of held a grudge a little bit um, through the remainder of his career about that. So why did the Mets finally agree to let him go? And for all people, Joe Foy. So they didn't want the third baseman 
Joe Torrey, but they allowed him to go for Joe Foy. Yes, I remember there was some uh, front office change over in the Mets, and maybe uh, maybe Amos Otis has star dimmed a little bit in those uh, next couple of years in the minors. But I think that um, I think that what really happened was that New York just kind of found itself without you know an idea about how to use him. I mean, I think that they. You know, it was probably pretty obvious that he was not going to be able to develop as an infielder, as a third baseman. And in the outfield, it was just a pretty well-stocked team at that point in time with uh, with um, Tomoda yeah. and AP and Cleon Jones. And then there was more young talent coming. And I think I think it was a, a little bit of a numbers game in the Mets outfield. And I think it, that it was a little bit of a, uh, um, you know, maybe a star faded dim just a little bit. He was a cornerstone of what turned out to be an outstanding team in Kansas City. Tell us a little bit about the Royals. They were not a typical expansion team in that they were pretty good right from the start. Well, they had a general manager named Lou Gorman, and he would uh, go on and, and work as a G, work in the Boston front office. But um, Bill James, I, I remember very famously, and I read, Bill very early on he was down in Kansas and I so just being a few hours north when I was in high school we kind of heard of him and so so my group of uh of friends um as baseball fans we knew Bill James very early on and he once called um once called Lou Gorman the flim flam man he had an incredible (laughs) incredible run of trades got John Mayberry for next to nothing Freddie Patek Cookie Rojas. I mean, he assembled that team that was so good in the mid seventies and boy, he did not give up very much. He had a great knack of finding, uh, finding guys on his own roster that, um, had had what would amount to their only good year in the majors and turning those players into really good young players on the rise. So those teams, you know, name Otis, in a lot of ways was um, the best of that um, process. He was uh, the youngest when he came to um, Kansas city. Mayberry was a little older. Um, Rojas was a, was a very veteran player towards the end of his career. By then Freddie Patek, kind of the same things, but those players like Amos Otis, they were all kind of liberated from situations where they just weren't going to get an opportunity to play every day. And, Boy, I'm telling you, when Lou Gorman and Joe Burke, those guys in the early front office, of course, John Sherholtz was a scout um, for the Royals from the beginning, from about 1969. When when they assembled those guys, man, it's hard to imagine a, a, a collection of dudes clicking any better than they did. And, of course, they made a couple of real astute draft choices, Steve Busby, before they right. uh, finished off the process of ruining his arm and Dennis Leonard turned into a great pitcher. Right. Paul Splitorf was one of the very first players that the Royals ever drafted. Um, Larry Gurr came over from the Yankees because he just could not get along with Billy Martin, and he was a, just a great building block for those Royals rotations. So just a, a real interesting process of, of putting together a bunch of guys that really hadn't been appreciated or, or uh, given an opportunity where they were. And they had an academy or a minor league team prior to entering the league in 69, did they not? Yeah, you know, Ewan Kaufman maintained until the day he passed that 
had he kept that academy going, the Royals would have been an untouchable force. And he might be right. That academy, it was only alive for about three years, but it produced UL Washington, Ron Washington, Frank White. It basically, the idea was to take athletic kids, um, and many, many of them were from the inner city, and um, give them a, an environment that was basically like a baseball college. They, they'd uh, they'd go down to um, oh, uh, Florida. The name of the town escapes me now. Um, maybe it was Fort Myers, but they'd go down to Florida. They lived in dorm-like um, buildings, and they were just uh, drilled in baseball fundamentals, and they were just sort of um, just surrounded by baseball all the time. And, and uh, Sid Thrift was one of the people <laughs> that operated that academy. And, um, you know, it was just a, it, it was an idea. It would remind you a lot of what, um, all the major league teams have going down the Dominican, you know, with, with Dominican academies. Sure. Um, but it was a, it was just a terrific operation and it was a little bit costly and it was just kind of, it, it was really derided, honestly. I mean, people around baseball really made fun of it, um, until, after it had been shut down, you know, all of a sudden now there are a few major leaguers and, and uh, a little bit surprising to me that, you know, no one ever tried to replicate it. You and Kaufman didn't push the envelope you know, or push all of his cards in, to the middle of the table and or whatever. But um, it certainly was, uh, you know, in hindsight, it was a very successful venture. It probably, probably didn't seem that way at the time, but it was a, uh, it was a really um, kind of a groundbreaking proposition. Interesting. Back to Amos. So he gets to Kansas City, and it turned about it, it. It turned out to be a great thing for him. They there weren't really expectations out of the Royals their first couple of years, and they allowed Amos to continue to develop at the major league level. At his first year, he was solid. He hit 284, and as you alluded to earlier, he led the American League in doubles with 36. Tell me about those first few years with the Royals and how he established himself. Well, and he was uh, he was um, Kansas City's first legitimate All Star, I believe, in 19 uh, I think in 1971. He was actually uh, you know picked as a legitimate All Star rather than being the one guy who. Um, you know, the one, the Kansas city's one designee, but, um, he was, he was a star in Kansas city right away. Uh, he had a, um, a flare on the bases, really ran the bases. Well, had very good speed. Um, kind of had the, had the hair kind of a little bit of an Afro. And so he was, uh, he was pretty recognizable that the, um, baseball fans in Kansas city. And now you've got to remember they put up with, such lousy teams with the Kansas city A's for all those years from the, from the time Arnold Johnson purchased the, um, the athletics from the Mack family and moved them to Kansas city. They were just so bad. And when Charlie Finley came, you know, he was such an outrageous guy and, and um, his act just was so antithesis to the Midwest. I mean, I just, I can't imagine having spent so many years watching games in that town. What it, it that was, like that was a, watch that was a quick that was a quick turn too from the Kansas City A's to the Kansas City Royals was it not? It was only like a year or two uh, after Kansas City left for Oakland 
that they gave Kansas City a new team with the Royals. Was that not pretty quick? Yeah, the A's left after I think after the 1966 season, and and that was you know that was the you were just starting to see the guys that were going to form the dynasty in Oakland. Those three straight World Championship teams. Um, Reggie Jackson was up, and and uh, Campy Campanaris, and so that was you know just as soon as Kansas City was going to have a, a interesting good team to cheer for, Charlie Finley moved them out to the Bay. So, um, and why was yeah, that? Was right. it was it was it was it because of attendance? Why why was Kansas City moved to Oakland? No, in fact, I think um, famously the uh, the Kansas City fans. I think the story goes that the last couple weeks of the season, after it was already clear um, that Finley was going to move the team, filled Old Municipal Stadium night after night just to kind of send the message that hey, this clown's leaving, but we. We uh, we deserve baseball here, and I, I, it was a feud over the facility. Mm. Municipal Stadium um, by then was failing. It was a decades-old minor league park that had been built up like so many of the um, so many of the ballparks then, and so it was it was really only about the facility. So again, back to Amos. How underrated or understated or unassuming was Amos? As I did my research for this edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes and looked at different fan sites for the Royals and other places too, there's very little written about him. Why is that? Why is Amos Otis not as well known as Hal McRae or Frank White or Willie Wilson? I even saw one fan site that says Amos Otis might be one of the most underrated players in Royals history. He wouldn't quite be on the Royals' Mount Rushmore, but he would be pretty damn close. The guy played for the Royals for 14 years and is still in the team's top three in home runs, RBIs, stolen bases. He was a stud fielder. What didn't he do? You know, he he is on my Mount Rushmore of Royals. Um, greats. I think that he's, you know, even after, um, even after the players that are currently there now, even after the dust settles on their careers a little bit, I think Amos Otis will always be, he was, he and Busby were the first two members of the hall of fame. And, you know, he was really, um, he was a very private person. Um, he was very, uh, whereas a lot of those guys really, um, Embraced the community, the Rojas's and the um, the Potex, even John Mayberry before he had his drug issues. Um, you know, Amos Otis, I think, always went home to Alabama in the winter. Um, he was just, you know, he's just not a real uh, outgoing character. He was um, a little bit sullen sometimes, and I think, um, I think, if I'm remembering right, he was accused of uh, pouting some when he was. Uh, um, on the farm with the Mets and, you know, and Hey guy, you know, guys grow up at different rates. We all do, we all do that. And we all know that. But, um, I think that, uh, I've got a friend who's actually our radio play by play, man. He grew up in Wichita and he's, he's a Royals fan, but he's about 20 years younger than me. And, and he asked, he asked just a couple of weeks ago, if anyone, um, if Brett, if George Brett was the Royals first star and Amos Otis was really the Royals first star. And, Sure. Of course, people that people that remember that remember him, you know, are older now, and and you've had some great players uh, pass through there since then. Not a whole lot in the, you know, in the ten years or so before, um, 
you know, before this current group got, was assembled, but, um, you know, Carlos Beltran, Johnny Damon, I mean, the Kansas City Royals have continued to produce some, some talent, but yep. boy, I think you could make a really good case that Amos Otis is one of the three or four great position players that organization has ever put on the field. And he was pretty good in the postseason too. His first at bat in the 1980 World Series, he hits a home run, has a 295 career postseason batting average. It's consistency. Oh, the guy was as consistent as they came. Really consistent. And I'll tell you what, Warren, I can still feel the sickness in my stomach when he hit first base. You know, the very first uh, at bat the Kansas City Royals ever had in the world in the uh, postseason was the 76 ALCS Royal Stadium I was so excited I was uh, about 13 years old and my favorite player wrecked his ankle going across first base and <laughs> so does Whitey had moved him to lead off uh, which he'd he'd um, rarely done in, in uh, you know since his very early years in Kansas City and trying to beat out a ground ball and, and he uh severely sprained his ankle and was lost for the postseason and and you know that's still just such a bitter thing um for me because you know I just still feel like they would have beaten the Yankees if if Amos would have been uh, healthy for that series but you know he just as as his career passed he was sort of, sort of surpassed in the limelight and in the hearts of Kansas City by George Brett and right. you know which is understandably sure. so and then Brett went on to such a great, such a long career. Um, and he, and, you know, John Mayberry, who was his exact contemporary would hit just monstrous home runs. And, you know, even, even then 45 years ago, you know, you always, you always, your eyes always go to the guy that can hit the long ball. And, and, uh, so I just, I just kind of think it was Amos's lot to always be a little bit overshadowed. You know what I mean? Lou Gehrig to Babe Ruth, just on another level. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, Royals management knows how good he was and what he meant and what he means to the franchise. And as you stated before, along with Steve Busby, he was one of the first two selected into the team's Hall of Fame. But again, he's so understated. He didn't even get one vote for Cooperstown. Now, I'm not saying that he should be enshrined in Cooperstown, but he did put up some pretty darn good career numbers, a 277 career batting average, 342 steals, and he led the league with 52 in 1971. Three gold gloves, five all-stars. Again, I got to ask, why is he forgotten? In fact, you even said, now, now, I can understand, well, not really, but I can understand why fans of other teams might not remember Amos Otis considering all the other stars that were on the Royals. But even you said he became a somewhat forgotten ball, ball player everywhere except Kansas City, but I can't help but think there are some Kansas Cityans who don't recall Amos Otis. Well, I, I think, Warren, that the... Um the things that really uh, rounded out his, his arsenal, his resume that really gave him a great value as a ball player are things that especially then weren't necessarily really valued. Um, he got on base. He drew an enormous number of walks. He, uh, he drew, I know he drew exactly 100 walks kind of right in the middle of his year, his, his uh, career, maybe in 76 or 77 when the Royals were, uh, 
really experiencing some um, some success. But I remember a um, and you know Bill James, who I referenced, uh, he called Amos Otis his favorite player too. Interesting. And I remember um, an anecdote that in one of his very early abstracts that Bill James wrote about Amos Otis that um, there was a play with men on first and second in a very important September game. And um, somebody hit sort of a flare into shallow center field. And Bill James wrote that it would have been very easy to make a big, big splashy play and die for it. And maybe the ball might get past you on that turf or whatever. But he said, Amos Otis raced up to it, let the ball drop, held the guy uh, on second from scoring. And the Royals eventually got out of the inning without giving up any runs. And he said it was that kind of um, really smart, but really Hmm. subtle play that um, really made Amos Otis a terrific player. And and I agree with that. And I think that's what I always sensed was that he just did a lot of little things. He was pretty good at taking the extra base. Um, He was really good at, um, he had a very nice arm for being a, you know, sort of a speed guy. I I just think, like you said, what didn't he do well? I mean, he really did um, everything pretty well, but maybe to his detriment, uh, didn't do any one thing spectacular. Yeah, maybe if they had beat the Yankees in 76 or 77 or 78, one of those three years, it, it might have had a uh, different outcome as far as his popularity. Yeah, and also as far as getting him to the, you know, playing a few games in the World Series in those years in terms of national exposure, because of course, you know, if you were watching, uh, if you're a baseball fan, then you got one game of the week. And you got, you know, you got to watch the teams that made the postseason. And so, you know, baseball fans got to see him play well, five times in 76 and 77 right. and then four in 78. But, you know, in in those days, the, it was, um, I mean, it was a, the late 70s were a tremendously interesting time with the big red machine kind of coming to the end of its dominance and the Yankees rising, the Dodgers, and you know, the Phillies looking for their first World Series title. and you know, Kansas City is the, the expansion startup. It was, and the Houston Astros were a really exciting team. I mean, it was the, um, you know, the Milwaukee Brewers, Harvard right. Wallbangers were kind of coming in. So, I don't know. I just have such fond memories of um, of teams and, and personalities from that era. And I think that maybe, you know, the, by getting to the World Series, the, the baseball public may have been able to watch Amos Otis a little more and appreciate him, but. I kind of think maybe it was a lot of it had to do with, you know, just his skill set because, you know, I keep coming back to you did so many things well, but, but didn't have that one freaky raw tool, you know, like um, some of the national league outfielders, you remember Gary Maddox and, right. you know, Greg Luzinski hitting bombs and bombs. maybe didn't have that one thing that, um, that people really latched onto in their memory. After his playing days were over, he did coach a little, but never really went anywhere. Why is that? Tell me about his post-playing days and what he's doing today. Well, I'm not sure I know a lot about it. I know he had some uh, some business ventures he was involved with. I do know that um, that today he lives in Las Vegas. He's lived there for many years, um, and he has kind of been um, – I don't want to say welcomes back into the Royals family because I don't think he was ever not welcomed, but I think, but I know that he's um, 
become a little bit more public. Excuse me, back in Kansas City now, um, the radio station I listen to, uh, I listen to a radio station in KC every um, every morning to get my Royals fix. But mm. they've really done a good job of kind of looping him back in, and he's back for some type stuff. And so, you know, it's good to hear his voice. I just heard him on the radio a couple weeks ago, and it's great to, um, you know, great to kind of keep up with him because. Um, of all those great players, you know, of course, Cookie Rojas is back in Miami right. doing radio, and and um, um, Freddie Potek still lives in Kansas City, and and John Mayberry does. Willie Akins is back there now, so a lot of those guys, you know, still live in KC. But um, I think by by not living in Kansas City, maybe Minnesota didn't do himself any favors. But it's sure fun to um, to hear him on the radio and to sort of see his name in the in the public uh, setting in Kansas City now. That's great. You know, in the end, why is Amos Otis one of the most important players in the history of the Kansas City Royals? And what should we all know about him? Well, I I think um, he is, you know, I think it's the best way to say it is he was Kansas City's first star. And he was probably, you know, the athletics had some terrific players, Maris and so on, but, uh, you know, in the early, early days of Reggie Jackson. But those guys for the A's were always either very early in their career on their way to somewhere else, whether it be to the Yankees or, you know, to the Bay Area, or at the very end of their career when certainly their better days were behind. Kansas City, um, the first star that was really Kansas City's own, I would make the case, was Amos Otis. And, Maybe it didn't last a super long time because along came Brett and those great, uh, great guys on the you know late seventies championship teams. But boy, he was a fun guy to cheer for. He's a fun guy to watch, and and he was really, really a special player. Hey, so how long have you been a member of Saber? Oh boy, I uh, I joined the year I went away to college in uh, nineteen eighty one. So I've been I, I've let my accidentally let my uh, membership lapse once or twice along the way. But uh, for the most part, I've been a member for, uh, I guess that'd be 36 years. Wow. What is it about Sabre that you find so interesting? You know, I love, I, I love the, uh, the history, uh, the personalities. Um, I was involved in the dead ball era committee for a long time. Um, you know, you, the, the term Sabre metrics is, applied to statistical uh, analysis and I enjoy reading about that, but I've never, never been very involved in that generating knowledge in that realm. So I, I really have uh, enjoyed writing and, and uh, learning about, you know, the forgotten heroes, as you'd say. Cool. Bill, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Tell me again, which bio are you working on right now? I'm working on uh, um, Sloppy Thurston. And I'm working on uh, uh, Kenny Williams. Interesting. I can't wait to read them. Thanks again. And hopefully you'll come back again to talk about another sports forgotten hero like Sloppy Thurston. I'd love to have you back. I'd love to, Warren. This was a lot of fun. Very, uh, very good conversation. Thanks so much, Bill. For his career, Amos Otis hit 277. He had 2,020 hits, 193 home runs, and 1,007 RBIs. He stole 341 bases, led the American League with a career-high 52 in 1971, and twice led the AL in doubles with his high coming in 1976 with 40. 
He is a three-time Gold Glove winner and an original member of the Kansas City Royals Hall of Fame. A solid, solid career. Incidentally, Joe Foy, the man who the Royals traded to get Amos Otis, did enjoy some good years. Overall, he played six seasons in Major League Baseball, spending time with the Red Sox, the Mets, and the Washington Senators. He had a career batting average of .248 with 58 home runs and 291 RBIs. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore the history of one of the NFL's forgotten teams, yes, team, the Cleveland Rams, the only franchise in the history of football to win an NFL championship in three different cities. Yes, the Rams actually got their start in Cleveland, and they actually won an NFL title while playing there. That's next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you again to today's guest, Bill Lamberty, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.